I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 8. I failed to mention earlier before Scripture reading uh, an important announcement, and that's that today, after this service, there's a, a light and brief lunch. It um, doesn't sound very appealing, does it? A light and brief lunch. A deliciously light and brief lunch uh, for you if you're new to OBC. Um, it's going to be nice out today. I'm not going to keep you, and I won't lie. I want to get out there too. So, But we would love to have you stop in the library, which is out, out these doors to the right. And uh, we'd just love to, to talk with you for about five minutes. Uh, you can eat longer than that, but I have about five minutes worth to talk. Um, and just welcome you, answer any questions you might have, and uh, really distill what we're all about and, and just encourage you with that. So we'd love to have you be here for that event. Didn't want to tell you at the end of the service because then you couldn't pass notes back and forth to your spouse wondering whether or not you could make it or not. Pray with me if you would. Father, once again we come before you in prayer and acknowledge that we can pray and have confidence that you hear us because of the work of your Son because of what He has done on our behalf, that there has been reconciliation where there was conflict, and that we can now enjoy a good and right relationship with You, our Creator, as our Father who cares for us. Lord, now open our eyes so that we would behold wonderful things from Your Word, so that we might worship You as we should, so that we might find great joy regardless of the circumstances we might be living in. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as a public speaker, this is the place where I'm supposed to get your attention, number one, and secure your interest, number two. It's a pretty big, big task. I am now going to get your attention and secure your interest with one word. And the one word is predestination. You're all listening. Predestination. That's interesting to some of you because you know of its its biblical significance and and you know of the hope that it brings you as a Christian. It gets others' attention because you can't believe I said the word in church of all places. It is of interest to others because you're curious and you'd like to know, does the Bible talk about this? And if so, what does it say? And so this morning we are going to talk about predestination. We'll talk about other issues as well. But what brings us to this matter of talking about predestination is a greater context. And the context is Romans chapter 8. And in Romans chapter 8, verse 18 to 30, we have all of these different sources of, of encouragement and, and hope. And, and we see all of this given to us by God to encourage us because Romans eight seventeen tells us. Let's go ahead and look at that. That's the context. Romans eight seventeen informs us that we're children of God as believers, heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. And so much of what came before that in chapter 8 of Romans is about suffering. As I've been saying over and over again, we live in a broken world. It's obvious, right? But not only do we live in a broken world because of sin, we also as Christians have been promised by Jesus that we will face opposition because of our relationship to Him. 
It's great to have Christ as Savior. It's great to serve Him out of thanksgiving because of what He's done. But Jesus, in no uncertain terms, said when He was here on earth, if they persecuted Me, they will persecute you. And so Romans 8 is designed to encourage us. It's designed to, to be frank and say there's going to be suffering. There's no question about that. But you need to know, Romans 8, 18 to 30, you need to know that there's all of this encouragement along the way to get you through the difficult times. And we've been looking at these different sources of encouragement. In verse 18, we looked at there's a promise of coming glory when we'll be made like Christ. That encourages us in the here and now. In verses 19 to 22, we have the source of encouragement being the the creation and how even the creation is waiting for that day when there is restoration and what's broken is fixed. In verses 23 to 25, we have hope, hope that we have in Christ. We have a sureness about the future because of what He's done. That, that gives us encouragement. Verses 26 to 27, we have the, the hope or the encouragement that comes from the fact that the Holy Spirit of God prays for us. Sometimes the circumstances we're in are so complicated and so complex. We don't know the future. We're not sovereign. We're not in control. Everything looks like it's a mess. We pray the best we can and God gives us the great encouraging promise. My Holy Spirit prays for you. And we know He prays perfectly. And then in verse 28, that source of encouragement that we call providence, that God, amidst all the brokenness, causes all of it to work together somehow for our good as believers in Christ. And so by now, we should should feel encouraged. I can cope. I can deal with life in the complexities of persecution and suffering and, and bad health, crisis, tragedy. God cares. God knows. And He wants us to be encouraged by these truths. The last source of encouragement we're going to look at in in this section is in verses 29 and 30. Let's call it sovereign grace. Let's call it sovereign grace. And that's where predestination comes in. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. Now, when I say sovereign grace as a source of encouragement, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. But it's kind of theological verbiage. Christian verbiage. And so here's what I mean if you don't know what I mean. When I say sovereign grace, I'm talking about God's grace, which is a free gift, something He does, specifically about salvation, that God gives us salvation freely. But when I say sovereign grace, I'm talking about God being in charge of the whole package. And that whole package of salvation that reaches back before time begins and reaches into the here and now and reaches into the future is something that God does and is in charge of and therefore it is always successful because we're talking about God who is all-powerful. So when you hear people talk about sovereign grace, they're talking about how God is the Savior He is the one who starts. He is the one who continues. He is the one who finishes. It's all about Him. The idea of sovereignty is just the idea of royalty. Well, God is extraordinarily sovereign because He's ultimate royalty. And we should be encouraged by this. God starts what He finishes. Or excuse me, God finishes what He starts. And He starts what He finishes. (laughs) Both work. Let's see sovereign grace. Look at verses 29 and 30. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, 
in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. Verse 30 then says, And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. That's sovereign grace. That is God working even before time begins with foreknowing. There's a synonym used in Ephesians 1.4, but it's talking about in Ephesians 1.4 making it clear this is before time even begins as we know it, before the foundation of the world, it says. And then it moves on, predestined. Moves on into calling, into time, in the here and now as we know it. Then justified in the here and now. And then it moves on as well. Those five different components are what have been affectionately known as and should be known as the five links in God's unbreakable chain. God's unbreakable chain of salvation. God's unbreakable chain of redemption. And it's really talking about sovereign grace. Let's make some observations about sovereign grace and this whole chain thing before we get into the details of four new and predestined related ideas. Just, just looking at it from the 30,000 foot level, just general observation so we can understand it better. First and foremost, let me tell you what I think is obvious, but just remind you, this is meant for our encouragement. This is not in the context of theological controversy. This is in the context of, of, of you being encouraged amidst crisis and difficulty. That's the context. This is a happy truth, okay? Smile. This is not about fighting and arguing and, you know, I don't believe that and I don't like that. This is, wait a minute. Amidst all of the tragedy of all of this stuff going on around, you know how Romans 8.28 can be true, that God causes all things to work together? Well, it's grounded in 29 and 30. There's this unbreakable plan of God that starts before time begins as we know it, works in time and even goes into the future and it secures our future. Smile. (laughs) This is great. I can have joy in all of this. And not only can I have joy because I can have joy, even though it's not a very happy circumstance, that means Christ can be exalted and God can be honored and I can say, God, thank you for being a, a, a sovereign God who activates according to sovereign grace. So keep that in perspective. Another thing to keep in perspective here is that this is a comprehensive plan. These links are connected and they're unbreakable. You start with for new and you end with that which is securely tied to it, which is glorified. Glorified is a future reality that hasn't even happened yet. And that is when you see Christ, you're made like Him and you're glorified, you're perfected. God finishes what He starts. He doesn't have any projects like we have in our garages that are unfinished. Starts what He finishes. If He does one, He will do the other. It's comprehensive. Reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 6. Jesus said, and, and, and He said it this way, All those you've given to Me, of all those you've given to Me, I will lose none of them. He's chiming in, saying the same thing. Where did Paul learn this doctrine? He learned it from Jesus. Another observation to make on the high level is that this chain has no fingerprints on it that are human fingerprints. Please notice that. 
We're the benefactors. We benefit from this great thing. This is about us in one sense. But if you look, it's all about God and what He does. In fact, let's go ahead and look at the emphasis by reading the verses again with emphasis. In 29, for those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He, the Son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He, 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 he. Who's the acting agent? Who's the one who's doing all of this? Whose fingerprints are all over this chain? This is God. God does this. So as we get comfort and encouragement from what God does, we praise Him for being such a great sovereign God. It's about Him. Maybe just one more observation before we actually get into the details, and that would be, having just read it with the emphasis on God, for those of you who are big fans of the doctrine of predestination, the doctrine of God foreknowing, which is really ends up being synonymous with electing, as we'll see. If you're a big fan, just please remember that the, the doctrine isn't an end in and of itself. You know, don't, don't put your affection on the word predestined. You know, don't, don't do that without also seeing the emphasis where it should be. He, 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 he. He, yes, we say, God, I, I love the doctrine of predestination because you are a God who predestines. I love you. It's important for us to remember that. This is about God. Our confidence and our security and our perseverance amidst the difficult stuff shouldn't cause us to, to stop by looking at a doctrine, a truth. Yeah, we do that and then we say, who's behind this truth, this this truth is with God as its author. It should cause us to want to praise Him. Okay, let's begin looking at these five links. We'll look at the first two this morning. These five links that demonstrate the sovereign grace of God and thereby encourage us even while we suffer. The first link is for new. Verse 29, for those whom He foreknew. And then he goes on to unpack what is connected to that. Let me ask you then. Let's, let's roll our sleeves up and do a little bit of study here. What does it mean to have someone foreknown? Those whom he foreknew. Well, at first glance, we might think, well, that means that God looks ahead of time and He sees what we do. And since He's God, He has the ability to see what we would do even before time begins. First glance, it's kind of the American way to read it, you know? Seeing ourselves and our actions, it's like Chevrolet and apple pie. Sovereignty of self, we do. God sees what we do and He responds. But that's not what it says. Even re-look at the words. Please just let the words of the text, forget my words, just let the words of the text speak loudly. Verse 29 says, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. God does not foresee actions. God foreknows people. And there is a huge difference like a difference between religions. A difference between salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, and salvation by works. 
It does not say what he foresees, does it? It says those whom people, not actions, he foreknows. And there is a huge difference and it's worth us talking about and unpacking. We read it with self-centered who knows why, but we read it as, okay, yeah, God, maybe so many Sunday school teachers have taught us this. I don't know. God foresees what we do. He sees that we're saying, I choose you, God, and based upon that, He does the predestinating. It doesn't say that. It doesn't mean that. Those whom, not actions, people, He foreknows. And by the way, every time this verb is used in the Greek New Testament, I've taken the the burdensome task of looking them all up, as have others. Every time the verb is used in the Greek New Testament in relationship to God, it's always talking about God knowing people ahead of time. Never talking about God knowing what people do ahead of time. It's, It's a term, it's an expression of affection, of love. God showing relationship, if you will, ahead of time. Showing affection ahead of time is what is being emphasized here. Similar to what Jesus said. Let's just talk about this word knowing from a biblical perspective. In the New Testament, we know the passage is very unlike this one, but it'll help you realize what's happening. Jesus said um, to those in Matthew chapter 7, that, that dreadful passage, He said, depart from Me. And then He says, I never knew you. Well, Jesus describes those people in detail what they did, but He said, I didn't know you. It wasn't that He didn't know what they did. He knew what they did, but He didn't know them. That is to say, there was not this close relationship. There was no love relationship there. This is just taken from the Old Testament as well. You know, Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew his wife. And we go, hee, 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 right? He had an intimate love relationship with his wife. He knew her. It wasn't that he knew about her. He knew about her. He knew about her actions long before that. But he knew her. There was love there. This is why a lot of times people say the idea, if you want the right idea, and they're right, is for loved. If you have an ESV study Bible, I think they even tell you that in a footnote, that that's a good way to render it. In fact, the note says, for new reaches back to the Old Testament where the word know emphasizes God's special choice of or covenantal affection for His people. Based upon Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, which uses the word elect or election as a synonym, this happens even before time begins as we know it. That God sets His love on people. He sets His affection on people before time begins. Now think about why this is so important. If it's the other way, which is not what the Bible even says, but if it is the other way... God looks ahead in time and He sees Pat, maybe because Pat is so smart, educated, wise, discerning. For whatever good reason, whatever good in Pat led him to this good decision, based upon my good decision, He then responds and He does something good. That's called salvation by works. And now the whole Bible is turned on its head and now... The Bible doesn't even make sense. Our Bibles tell us in Romans over and over again we've been saying it's by faith. It's by faith. By faith. And faith is not a work. Faith is is dependence. It is trust. It's only by grace. It's nothing you do. 
Ephesians 2, 8, you know the passage in 9, you've been saved by grace through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God so that no one may boast. If God looks ahead and sees me saying, hey, you know what, I'm going to do this, and so then he responds, there's boasting because I was so smart or so righteous or so godly or so creative or, or something. It's not what the Bible teaches not only does the words, not only does the verse not teach this, we've read it wrong who knows how many times, even the context doesn't teach this. Let me remind you, go back to Romans chapter 3. You know, we like to say, and for good reason, you can make the Bible say anything, but not in context. Just please remember, as you're trying to think this through, remember the context. Romans 1, 2, and 3 were about primarily sin, 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 sin. And sin doesn't leave us with a, you know, spiritual sniffles. It knocks us out. We're, we're incapable of doing good in God's eyes. If God were looking ahead, He's not seeing anything good. Because look at Romans chapter 3, verse 10, where it says, as it is written... None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No, here's what I underlined and bolded. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if the verse read differently, which it doesn't, it wouldn't make sense because if God were looking door, down the corridor of time to see what Pat would do, what he would say, see if he surveyed the whole land of humanity, which is, by the way, how uh, Psalm 14 puts this picture, which is what Romans 3 is quoting. God looks everywhere for someone. How many is he going to find going, I choose you. Use the biblical verbiage. No, not one. It would never happen. It would never happen. I liked what James Montgomery Boyce said about this. He said it so well. He's in heaven now, so I know he could say it better. But when he was on earth, he said this. If God would wait a hundred thousand years for us, if we could remain so long in the world, yet it is certain that we would never come to him nor do anything else but increase the mischief continually to our own condemnation. It couldn't be more right. If that were the case that God were waiting, it would never, ever, ever, ever happen. And so we, we have to make sure that we pay really close attention to what Romans 8.29 actually says and what it doesn't say. And then we're going to praise God. God, thank you that amidst the crisis of my life, amidst the broken world that I live in, amidst my brokenness that I live, God, thank you that you're not going to give up on me and you've secured my glorification. And you know what? It's not tied to my performance. Because quite frankly, if it's tied to my performance, what if I fold? What if I crash and burn? What if I can't be good enough to hold it all together? What if I wasn't even good enough? Well, you know what? My glorification is tied back to God for loving me, for knowing me. It's all of God. Man, that's secure, encouraging, awesome. When few others love me, I can go to Romans eight twenty nine and say, before time ever even began, I cross-reference with Ephesians 1, God foreknew me. He foreloved me. See, now Romans 8.28, and I've tried to do this as we've looked at 8.28 in Providence. I've tried to always read 29 and 30. 
Now, now Romans 8.28, this great text that we love to quote all the time, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love Him, those who have been called according to His purpose. You know, it, has, it had legs to stand on. How can He say that? He can say that because before time began, He foreloved, predestined, called, justified, glorified. You know? One thing I've been remiss of doing as I've been preaching in Romans is since we're looking at such small pieces to remind you of the big picture. Remember when we get to Romans 12? You know, I like to just taste Romans 12 a little bit along the way. This is all designed to just build and build and build, you know, sort of like one of those old pressure cookers. And it's just building and building and it just wants to explode because God's people hear this and they're encouraged. And then we have Romans 12.1. I urge you therefore, brethren... By the mercies of God. That would be code for what we're learning about now. The mercies of God. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God to to present your bodies, all of you, as a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Man, in light of all this great doctrine that that is what gets you through life, worship God. Praise God. Exalt God. And when you begin just learning that it's all of Him from start, to finish, I do want to do that. I want to give Him everything. It's already all been taken care of. Sovereign grace is really, in one sense, the only kind of grace. But we've gotten to the point where we talk about grace, but we don't really mean free gift, totally free. What, what we mean is, you know, grace is God responding to us. And so, as Christians, we've had to say, well, we don't mean that. We mean sovereign grace. That he starts. It's all about him. Well, now we're ready to move on to the second link in God's unbreakable chain. The second link in God's unbreakable chain is predestined. It's not hard to understand what predestined means. It means destination pre. Beforehand, there's a destination secured. Look with me, if you would, at 29. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Let's stop there for for a moment at least. Predestination. I have a destination in mind. It's secured that I'm going to reach that destination. In this context, it's glorified. It's pretty wild to think about. Who can do that? Not me. Only God could do that. You know, this, this week, I, I got some tickets to go to California in March. Southwest, living large. You know, 98 bucks. It's my destination to go to Southern California. And I'm planning to go there. But it's not predestined. Right? I'm planning on it, but I might get sick. I might not be alive. There might be some other crisis that happens. I might oversleep. Who knows? Destination is was what I want. It's what I'm planning on, but it's not predestined, not in the sense we're talking about. Only God can say, I promise you, Pat, I promise you, amidst this difficult, broken life that you live, predestined, based upon my initiative, you'll arrive. cool. It's encouraging. It's great. Spiritual terrorists can hijack the flight all they want. (laughs) 
but I'm going to get there. And it's going to be sunny. <laughs> okay, now I'm mixing the illustration. It's going to happen. Reminds me of Philippians 1.6. You probably know the verse, if you know the Bible at all. That he who began a good work in you, what? Will be faithful to complete it or faithful to perfect it. He's going to finish. He's going to finish. Got to love that. Well, there's more that we need to see because he, he tells us what we're predestined for. Verse 29, to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's, that's sunny destination. <laughs> that's where we're headed, to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be Christ-like. Where is He taking us? He's taking us to, to be more and more like Christ till the point we're glorified. And, and as First John says, we see Him and we're made like Him. That's, that's where we're headed, no matter what the bumps are along the way, no matter what happens along the way. That's where He is taking us, to be conformed to the image of His Son. And this is what God is doing in this world. Remember that, that we're all tied to Adam. Romans chapter 5 talked about that. And where Adam led the human race into sin, we're all tied to Adam, and it doesn't end well. Adam was sinless, and he led the human race into sin. But there's a second Adam, like 1 Corinthians 15 talks about. And the second Adam is going to lead into righteousness. Sinless one leading into sin, first Adam. Sinless one leading into righteousness, and we're going to be made like Him, the second Adam. Romans chapter 5, verse 19. By the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's what God is doing. That's what He's doing in salvation. We're all related to the first Adam, and He's working. Bringing about conformity with the second Adam. But this isn't all. There's a greater purpose. To be like Christ, that's, that's awesome. But it's greater in 29. Keep reading. In order that he, Christ Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what, what is that? Think. I'm encouraged that God promises that I've been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son. That's for me, and that's encouraging for me, and I'm so thankful, and you should be too. But there's something even greater. Predestination helps Pat. It helps you keep your eye on the ball, so to speak, no matter what's happening around you because of God's sovereign grace. But it shouldn't only encourage you in regards to what it's, what's in it for you. There's a greater purpose in order that Christ Jesus might be firstborn among many brothers. It's to exalt Christ. The second Adam is going to lead into righteousness. And if you've been predestined to be conformed into the, His image, you know what? There's even something greater. Why is He doing that? So we can be saved, yes. So we can have hope, yes. So we can glorify Him, yes. But you know what? The greater purpose for this predestinating work is to show the greatness of Christ and to show the greatness of who He is and what He's done. The, 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 the firstborn among many brothers, He is unlike the first Adam in that He is leading us into righteousness, which glorifies Him. He is that great. He accomplished redemption for us. Righteousness for us. So the doctrine of predestination is great because it's for us, but the doctrine of predestination is great because it's for Christ. 
Because as He's doing things for us, it's showing His greatness. It causes me to love the reality of this doctrine more and to love the God behind it even more. It's ultimately for the glory of the Son. Now, some of you might be thinking, man, this is theological. You know? It sure is doctrinal. Well, this is church. Okay? <laughs> it's kind of the idea. But when you stop and think about it, this is all in the context of Romans 8 suffering. Practical, real life. The most practical, real life thing that we obviously need, or God wouldn't have done it this way, is to understand right doctrine and to understand theology, big God theology that makes us a little uncomfortable maybe, that causes us for the first time maybe to see, you know what, I'm not sovereign. I didn't start this work. God did. And He secured it all. But that theology is what causes me to be able to face whatever. It causes you to be able to face whatever. This is great stuff. This is not what we should be fighting over. It's what we should be praising God for. But I'll tell you what, I'll fight for it. Because of what it means to me in my own life as far as application and as far as what it means in the life of other believers for application. It's here in this context for a reason. Sadly, so many Christians don't find any comfort in predestination or God's foreknowledge. It's meant to. It's meant to give you joy. Because of what Christ has done, I can deal with this. It's sad. Let's talk about some objections. We'll move on next week and we'll talk about calling, we'll talk about justification, we'll talk about glorification. But let's talk about objections because I know there are objections. A number of years ago when we were in Ephesians, um, a long time ago, uh, at the end of Ephesians 1, I did a topical series on 18 common objections to election and predestination. I'm not going to do 18 now because that took three weeks. So, I've just, I think I have a handful of objections because I know that there are objections. I have not believed this my whole Christian life, okay, my entire Christian life. Um, I, I went to church for the first 20 years of my life and was not a Christian, and I don't think I ever even heard the word predestination. And so I don't know where you are. Maybe you're like me. Maybe you've heard it a lot of times. Maybe you love it. I don't know. But there are some objections that are worth dealing with that will be applicable to us. And I think they're worth interacting with and dealing with. One objection to this doctrine of predestination is that it's not biblical. It's my favorite objection. Now, it doesn't really work right now because we just saw it in the Bible. Okay? Um, but... I do like it when I'm, if I am going to have a discussion with somebody and they say, well, you know, you don't go to one of those churches that believes in predestination, do you? Or, you know, I was going to go to Omaha Bible Church and check it out, but, you know, somebody in your church told me that you believe in predestination. Like, why'd you tell them? I'm kidding. (laughs) It might have been practically relevant for their life. You know what? I just try to let people off the hook and say, well, everybody. Every Christian believes in predestination. So, so I, I know that you believe in it. You just might mean something different by it. Because I know you believe in it because it's in your Bible. And just show them. The Word is there. So a lot of 
professing Christians just don't know it. So be nice to them. Um, maybe you didn't even know it before. I hope I've been nice to you. <laughs> uh, it's there. And uh, God doesn't apologize for it. In fact, he gives it to us as comfort and encouragement. But a lot of people just don't know. But it's right there. Another objection, which is maybe the biggest one, is it's not fair. Predestination is not fair. And I, I totally understand why somebody would think that. And here's why. If you don't have a framework, a bigger theological, a bigger biblical framework that includes a biblical understanding of sin, you'll never swallow the big pill called predestination. It will seem unfair and you'll never buy it. Here's what I mean. Romans 1, 2, and 3 tell us clearly no one does good, no, not one. No one seeks for God, and it's in the context. They are so sinful. We are so sinful. We would never, ever do the right thing apart from being saved. To the point Romans 5 says, uses the word enemies. So we're not going to be waving, saying, I choose you, Jesus. And then all of a sudden, we're on to something. You know, Ephesians 2, 1, 2, and 3, dead in trespasses and sins, spiritually dead. For anybody to be saved, God has to initiate, right? He has to. And so I've had friends over the years, and I think this has been true for me as well, what helped me to say, all right, I get it, is to first grapple with anthropology, biblical anthropology, the study of men and women, mankind, and before you know it, you see, you know what? We don't just have the spiritual sniffles. We're spiritually dead. The only way we could ever be saved is by sovereign grace. God has to initiate. He has to. And otherwise, by the way, if you push it logically, it's just salvation by works anyway, which doesn't work for Christianity. And so keep that in mind. I think it would help. I'm thinking of one particular friend of mine. He just had the hardest time with it, and I'm so glad he stuck in there. And, and, and we just kept talking about it, and I just kept going back to depravity, back to Ephesians 2, right? Back to Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. Fair, fair is that we all go to hell. The wages of sin is death, you know? Fair? How about God is gracious if He saves one person? If God elects one he shows he's abundantly, amazingly gracious and merciful because we all deserve to go to hell forever. And that would be right and good and just. And the book of Revelation would have us to know that there are more people who are saved than, than, than we can even count. Wow. Ultimately, it ends up not being a question of God's fairness. Ultimately, it ends up being a question of, of, of God's goodness if you start thinking about it. It's to question God's goodness, and we don't want to do that. Another objection to the doctrine of predestination, which is so helpful to us, is that it's the same as fatalism. Predestination is fatalism. And that's, that's not true either. Fatalism, technically speaking, is by definition impersonal. Things happen just because they happen. It's fate. There's nothing personal about it. The biblical doctrine of predestination is not fatalism. It doesn't even fit in the same philosophical category because it, predestination is tied to God's love. 
personal interaction. Ephesians 1, 4 ends by saying, in love, and then verse 5, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, as the NAS says, according to the kind intention of His will. It's personal. So whatever it is, it's not fatalism. So we have to keep that in mind. That'd be worth a longer discussion, but that should be it for now. Two more. Last one will be real quick. This one is going to be an important one. Predestination kills evangelism. Predestination kills evangelism. And uh, it might if you have a wrong understanding of it, but predestination kills evangelism, that's a, that's a straw man argument. It's build a little man out of straw and say that's what it is, and then you go, that was easy to knock over. What we see in the Bible is predestination is biblical and evangelism is mandated, so we're already on to something. Uh, not only that, we have passages, as we'll see, that talk about this reality of predestination in the context of evangelism. And not only that, if you just read, again, what Jesus says about these kinds of issues, like in John chapter 6, John chapter 10, you go, whoa, and He's the one who gave us the Great Commission. So somehow these things work together. Then you look at extra-biblical history and who are the stalwarts that really stand out? I would suggest to you that the majority of them were people who believed in biblical predestination and election. Think about the big names. It'll kill missions. You ever heard of William Carey? The father of modern missions? Missionary to India? William Carey. Read about William Carey. Read his writings. William Carey was die in the wool so much that people hated him for it. Didn't kill his missionary endeavors. Sort of lit the flame. We know Charles Spurgeon, the, the Baptist from England, for one of two things. The prince of preachers or the great soul winner, as his book is entitled. And thousands and thousands and thousands of people converted under his ministry. He was so controversial about this. that he would say things like this that I'll, I would never say. Spurgeon would regularly say things like, Calvinism is the gospel. <laughs> you know? I just choked on my Taco Bell. I would never say that, partly because there's so much baggage involved. And you hear the word Calvinism, you're like, oh, you know. You think a lot of different things. So I won't say it. But what he was getting at was, the reality that God is totally sovereign and God initiates and God is the one who works and God is the one who draws and God is the one who calls. God is the one even who grants repentance and faith. Ephesians 2, 1 Timothy. That, that's the Gospel. It's all Christ and it's not God looking at you choosing Him first. It's all of grace. And He was a great evangelist. George Whitfield, another famous evangelist, same thing. And others could be named also. Don't buy that. In fact, when you believe in the biblical doctrine of predestination, it keeps you from being a manipulator in evangelism. Turn with me, if you would, to Acts chapter 13. Great passage. It actually keeps you from trying to convert people yourself, which is a disaster. We're going to talk about that tonight, as a matter of fact, in 1 Corinthians chapters 1 and 2. 
What we don't want to do is think somehow we convert people. What we don't want to do is be like, like quote unquote, the great evangelist, Charles Finney. I'd say Charles Finney, the horrible evangelist, because at the end of his life, he himself said, all of my converts are failures. But he was the master manipulator. He was the master at the altar call and bringing people forward, you know, 7,600 verses of just as I am and putting plants in the audience and kind of greasing the skids and bringing people forward. He invented the whole front thing, the kneeling down and coming forward called the anxious bench. And we call him a great evangelist. He himself said at the end of his life, it's all for naught. He also said that if he does the right things, he can convert people. And he hated the doctrine of predestination. Well, we don't need to do Phineasms. We don't need to do that. We don't need to stoop to that level so that when we get done in the end, we go, man, they were all failures because it was all based upon our, our, our strategic techniques. Acts 13.48 is awesome because it says, in the context of evangelism, and when the Gentiles heard this, the gospel that is, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. How about that? He's using sovereign grace verbiage. As many as were appointed unto eternal life, believed. They're, that's what we do. We, we, we preach the gospel far and wide. We are supposed to do that without any limitation. We don't know who God is for loved. We don't know who's predestined. We preach the gospel to anyone and everyone, everywhere. We're motivated to do it because Jesus says to do it. Knowing in our minds, as many as have been appointed unto eternal life, will believe. Man, I can sleep, right? <laughs> I can sleep at night because it doesn't depend upon me. And I don't have to be the master manipulator. What a great truth. This doesn't kill evangelism. It actually puts it in perspective and helps us to understand that it's about God saving, not about us. I'll never forget when Todd Swift, who's sitting right here, uh, Todd Swift and I went to Siberia years ago to teach at a seminary. And we were asked by a friend to teach apologetic methodology, which basically means how do you do evangelism with good theology, you know? How do you do evangelism and maintain good biblical theology? Your method matches your theology. Would you come teach that? And to me, that means, how can we teach these pastors at this seminary who are seniors at the seminary in Siberia, how do we teach them doctrine like we're talking about this morning, that it's all God, God initiates. Keep that in mind, Acts 13. You're called to evangelize everyone. Ultimately, God is the one who has to change the heart. And that was going to be all day, every day for a week, senior level class. But I know that in the Baptist Union in Russia, the pastors are forbidden from teaching this. So I said to my friend, he's emailing or talking to us, do you know what you're asking for? He said, I know exactly what I'm asking for. I trust you guys to do this in a way that's going to be wise, but I, I know exactly what I'm asking for. And I said, any advice? <laughs> and he gave great advice. He said, just use Bible words. You know, don't be as bold as Spurgeon. 
Just use Bible words. They're seniors, so they know Hebrew, they know Greek, they know hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. They've got all of this under their belts. And he said, if you, I think he used the word assault or pummel, I'm not sure, them with the text, you know, they'll pray the prayer. <laughs> and so that's what we did. Todd did. I sucked my thumb and wanted my mom. But <laughs> that's a whole other story. <laughs> But I remember one day we, we gave a quiz. And by now we're getting to know these guys. And we gave a quiz and the quiz was this, among other things. True or false? All those who have been appointed unto eternal life will believe. Silence. You know, it was like one of those game shows. Do, 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 do. You're just waiting. They're not doing anything. They're not writing anything. They're not saying anything. The do do was in Russian though, so that was cool. So, they, they started talking to each other. This is a quiz. And we're like, well, what, what are you doing? And finally somebody said, How should we answer? We're like, Well, you, you know the passage. Somebody tell me the passage. Acts 1348 in a Russian accent. Answer the question. We won't tell. It's very interesting. At the end of the week, we did oral exams. And Todd and I are in this room with this guy. And this guy's been sitting in the back every day. And he, he looks like he's so mad at you, it's unbelievable. And remember, in, in Russia, they don't smile all the time like we do. And they, they say, you know what, you Americans smile even when you're not happy. And uh, so just because we're not smiling doesn't mean we're not happy. We're just not fake. <laughs> So they always look like they want to kill you. But this guy, this guy really looks upset. And he's just in the back of the room. And Todd and I both noticed it. And we talked about this guy. Well, he comes in this small little room for the oral exam, just him and us. And I'm kind of scared. You know, this guy, and we're sitting at the table. And finally, he pushes himself back from the table like this, stands up. And he said, I believe like you believe. I was going, hallelujah, you know, I'm alive. <laughs> All of that to say, his heart changed that week because of the text of Scripture. And the reason he was so excited and so enthusiastic in talking to him is because now he understood it wasn't just about a theological debate. It's worth debating because we're talking about the sovereignty, therefore the supremacy of God. But he figured out it wasn't just about that. It was about something bigger. And it's about you can do evangelism and not result in stooping to the level of manipulation. You can glorify Christ by preaching the truth about Christ, which glorifies Him. And leave the response of the hearer up to God, which ultimately He and He alone has to do. And so it's a total cop-out to say this isn't helpful for evangelism. In fact, it's very, 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 very helpful. When we teach classes, we have people learn the doctrine of sin, the doctrine of Christ, uh, the doctrine of predestination, salvation, election, all these kinds of things. And then we talk about methods. Stressing, stressing, stressing. Don't violate your theology with your methodology. They're actually complementary. Look at Acts 13. And it's awesome. And hopefully then we don't have to look back at the end of this season of life when we're done saying it was all for naught because they're all our converts. 
The reality of predestination keeps us from that kind of stuff. Final objection, and it's my objection that I echo, and that is people who believe in predestination are mean. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands if you've ever met somebody who believes in predestination who's a mean person. Because <laughs> we all have. Well, maybe you haven't. There's a mirror in the bathroom. <laughs> if you've never met one who's mean, you probably are. It ought not be this way. They're either mean or arrogant. And maybe most of us have been there if we believe this for very long. I don't know. You know, you teach somebody this, and especially when they're coming out of something that doesn't believe this, and they see it, and the light goes off, you know, and it's like they're a rabid animal, you know, foaming at the mouth. Predestination. Can't wait for Christmas parties. You know, can't wait for, you know, birthday parties at home. We, you know, we call it the caged phase. You need to get out of the caged phase of believing these things as soon as you can. Because actually, this should cause you to be the happiest person around. And people who believe in predestination of all people shouldn't be arrogant. Because you understand that God wasn't looking and seeing your goodness. He saw your badness. And chose anyway. It's the most humbling thing around. So we should carry ourselves with humility. I think this is why, again, Paul, as he's reflecting on these things in Ephesians 1, he's talking about it and he just bursts into praise to God for His grace because he understood that the only way a totally depraved sinner could ever be saved is if God initiated by foreknowing. And so let's exalt Christ and let's champion the glory of Christ because He and He alone saves. And that means predestination has to be true or none of us could ever be saved. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this good time that we've had together to talk about what is for some a very difficult matter. And Lord, I just entrust our souls and ask you to work in our hearts that we would seek your word, even as the Bereans, to see if these things are so. And once we see that they are so, God, that we wouldn't question you, but that we would have our questions answered by your word that we would find ourselves with the Apostle Paul bursting forth with praise because there's absolutely nothing that we have done, absolutely nothing we've initiated to earn salvation. That It's all been of you. And Lord, as we talk about these matters further in the days ahead, may we be able to even understand better so that we might worship more faithfully and more appropriately. In Jesus' name, amen.